Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I want to talk about sorrow and flourishing. A lot of data on rise in loneliness, especially amongst the young and the elderly, even before COVID, right? COVID exacerbated a lot of these things. Uh, I think it was three or four years ago that Great Britain declared loneliness a public health issue. We also see connected to loneliness and to sorrow, uh, a lack of belonging, a lack of a sense or experience of belonging. I think in surveys I've seen about friendship uh, in the 1980s going up through the next 20, 30 years, people would report having 3.5 good friends. I don't know what the 0.5 friend does for you, but it's better than just three, I guess. And currently we're under three, like 2.8 or something. So you've got a significant reduction or under, yeah, under two, 1.8, uh, a, a roughly a 50% reduction in the number of people uh, who identify as having good friends. And sometimes that goes down further if they add certain criteria to defining a good friend. So sometimes people are asked, with how many people in the last month have you had a, a significant conversation about something that matters to you? And the numbers go down even further than that. I saw a survey that John Haidt posted. This is the opposite side of this, not so much a decline in friendship as a rise in civic animosity and hatred. I saw a survey that, uh, that John Haidt posted a few years back. I think it was during the Kavanaugh hearings. That too seems like it was the Middle Ages now, and that was only a few years ago, uh, where again, roughly the same time frame, 70s, 80s to recent years, Americans asked the question, uh, do you hate members of the other political party? That hovers at about 15 to 20% into the 2000s, and then it spikes, and it's more recently up around 45%, which is a really high number. But if you've been on Twitter, have you heard of this thing and you read the Twitter? Um, if you go on there and it doesn't matter what the first tweet is about, within three subtweets, people are angry about whatever they're really worked up about and using the main tweet. And our default position on Twitter seems to be that anyone who disagrees with me or my group is both evil and stupid. Now, Grant, there are people out there who are not making good arguments. And there are people who are malevolent, and sometimes that's the same person who's making a bad argument and also malevolent. The problem with how we interact on social media is that's our default position, right? It's the first thing for many people when they respond on Twitter is to start accusing people of being both stupid and evil. A lot of anger in our culture now. I think we can all see that and sense it, I, I've been speculating about something that I got from Aquinas about 
the anger. I mean, there are a lot of sources of the anger. But when Aquinas talks about the passions, and I was reading what he had to say about sorrow, he says that first we experience fear at the approach of an evil, something that we don't like, something that we don't want to happen, something that we don't want to be plagued by. And then when the evil is present, we experience sadness over the presence of the evil. Aquinas says the next emotion or passion that you feel is anger. Now that can be healthy anger, right? Because if it is something that you can do something about, the sadness leads you to get geared up to fight against it, right? Can you do something to get rid of this evil that's afflicting you? But I often wonder about the seemingly pervasive, at least pretty widespread anger in our culture. If for many of us, it doesn't sit atop deep pools of sadness. I gave a version of this talk a, a year and a half ago uh, at, for a Thomistic Institute, and um, the Dominican Father Jonah Teller was in the audience, and afterward, we were having a drink and just talking, and he said, he said something to me that he knows I like to quote. He said, you know, one of the interesting things about sadness is that it's not a transitive emotion. Anger's transitive. I can direct my anger at you. What do I do with my sorrow? I can't really direct my sorrow at you. If I'm a friend and I'm obsessed with what's making me sad, I can make you sad too if you're my friend, right? But I can't really direct my sorrow. I can direct anger. Deep senses on all political sides that decline in belonging. People saying, I don't recognize this country. I don't recognize the community that I live in. You gotta do something with that sorrow and you can have a virtuous response, a healthy response, or an unhealthy or, or, uh, or an unhealthy one. Another way to put this question for each of us is to ask ourselves, I think this is a, this is a way to gain greater self-knowledge. It's also a way to kind of test how your soul's doing. Um, what makes you sad? And how do you respond to sadness? And do the ways in which you respond to sadness sometimes make you more sad? We can, for Aquinas, respond to sorrow virtuously or not virtuously. In fact, as we'll see momentarily, sorrow is at the root of very important vices and virtues for Aquinas. So fear, sorrow, anger. We also know a lot from uh, contemporary evolutionary biology and psychology. There's a new book on friendship written by uh, an evolutionary psychologist, Lydia Denworth, just about the physiological effect on us of having people who care about us physically present to us versus having an absence or a deficit of that. Lots of data on our psychological and physical health being tied to some sense of being close physically to people who care about us and whom we care about. I think also 
one of the things I want to say at the outset is that, and I'll say more about this at the end, we can also think that sorrow is always bad, right? And sorrow is actually a natural emotion, and it's appropriate and virtuous to experience sorrow in certain settings. It's also, for Aquinas, appropriate and virtuous to experience anger in certain settings. And if we don't experience sorrow and anger in those settings, we have a kind of deficit in our character. Sometimes when we think about loneliness and sadness, uh, my wife and I have off and on at Baylor team taught a class on friendship. And we got worried after the first couple of times we did this, we're reading all these books and watching these movies about friendship, that if the students didn't think, the students thought at the end of that, that they didn't have great friendships or that they had loneliness, maybe there was something wrong with them. So we added to the curriculum Dorothy Day's book, the autobiographical book, The Long Loneliness, right? Where she talks about her life as a human being and then as a Christian as being characterized by periods of loneliness. And some of those periods overlap with being in the presence of family and friends, right? It is simply part of the human, fallen human condition that we would experience loneliness. So we shouldn't think that because we experience sorrow or because we experience loneliness, there's something wrong with us. There's also a really interesting, listening, uh, driving the car a couple months back to a podcast. And there's a book uh, by, a, again, a, a psycho uh, psychologist, uh, Tracy Tyler, called Future Tense. And it's about anxiety. It's a nice title, Future Tense. Uh, and she wants to distinguish between good and bad anxiety. We all know what the bad anxiety is, right? It's the chronic anxiety that seems to weigh us down and cripple us. But she worries that we're including under that the kind of natural and healthy nervousness that we get when we're facing something difficult, and she actually says, this is our system, that's why it's future tense, right? Something that's about to happen that we need to get ourselves prepared for. Might be a big exam, might be a big game, might be a performance of some sort, or a meeting with someone that you're worried, an interview, whatever it might be, right? The, and it's actually that, what we sometimes call anxiety there is actually connected with the production of endorphins. So it's actually something that's getting us ready to go. And I think that is there in Aquinas in both the fear of an approaching evil, right? How do I protect myself against this? And then after the sorrow of the evil being present, the anger that rises up, that initial anger for Aquinas is actually healthy or can be, right? Because it's my system saying, I need to get free of this. We need to get free of this. And your system starts to, build up a kind of internal resistance to the evil that's present and finding some way to escape or diminish it. So we need to sort out some of these things that we sometimes conflate. I want to talk about two specific articles in Aquinas where he talks about the species of sorrow and then he talks about the things that assuage or ease sorrow. I was reading this stuff not too long ago and was skeptical 
that the English translations were correct. Because the first species, so Aquinas will talk about um, causes uh, of sorrow that lead to virtue and vice. I'll get to those in a moment. But he talks about the effects of sorrow. And the first word he uses actually in Latin is anxietas. And then one of the English translations said, this makes us depressed. I said, that's got to be a bad translation, right? That's just somebody importing contemporary psychology back into Aquinas. But the, the Latin term that he's using is aggravare, which means both to aggravate or irritate and to weigh down. And Aquinas repeatedly says, what sorrow does is to weigh us down. The first mild form of that is what he calls anxietas. The more extreme form of that is what he calls torpor in Latin or actadia, which is the word we translate as sloth. And that's actually, when he introduces it here initially, it's not the vice. It's just an extreme form of sorrow that makes us, he says, potentially unable to move our limbs. So not wanting to get out of bed. Another, another, there's this phrase right after that where he says in Latin, um, acedia dicitur uh, amputare voce. That acedia is said to amputate the human voice. I have a colleague in uh, the Truett Baptist Seminary at Baylor, I haven't seen this essay yet, but he's writing an essay about during the lockdowns and COVID. He didn't get COVID, but he lost the ability to speak. And he's been doing a kind of medical and psychological analysis of what was going on. Aquinas says about this that the human voice is meant to give expression to the interior desires and thoughts of the soul. So anxietas is a being weighted down. Sorrow is a kind of weighted down. Torpor, or achadia, is when you, re you feel almost nailed down physically and emotionally. Right? And one of the worst symptoms or effects of that is, in a sense, an inability to even articulate what's going on. Right? There's a line from... Uh, King Lear that I love, where one of the characters says, this is not the worst so long as we can say this is the worst. Right. It, it's only the worst if it's actually the worst and you don't know it is, right? If you've lost the ability to recognize that something's really bad, that's the worst. If you can say this is bad, you're making a judgment that attaches you to some better order, right? So you have some idea something that's better. In a parallel way, with extreme sorrow depressing the soul, we lose the ability to name what it is that we're being afflicted by. We lose the ability to articulate it. I think we have a kind of cultural actadia, probably in lots of ways, but in that way, I think we go for really quick things like what this presidential candidate said or what those people are arguing for on some big cultural issue. 
But I think if we step back, we got to admit that what we're afflicted with culturally right now is really hard precisely to get our hands around and our mind around. It's hard to get a perspective on it. And I think that, at least for me, and I think about these things and read about these things and talk to people who are thinking about these things, at least for me, that increases the sorrow. How do we get a perspective on where we are, COVID, even post-COVID? So anxietas and then torpor and achadia. Aquinas talks about sorrow connected to vices. Achadia is one of those vices. And also to virtues. I want to say a little bit about the vice of envy and the virtue of mercy, both of which are rooted in sorrow. And they're both of are rooted in sorrow having to do with other people. So envy is sorrow over another's good fortune. Especially when that good fortune, in my own mind at least, harms my sense of honor or merit. Also, for Aquinas, if it's properly the vice of envy, this person actually merits whatever good fortune they have. Right? If they're awful people and they do, they've deceived everyone into getting money or honor or whatever, then there's, there's a more legitimate gripe that we have there. Right? But with envy, it's others who actually deserve what they have. Of course, if we're envious, that's the last thing we're going to admit to ourselves, right? That's the last thing. Because immediately we start constructing reasons precisely why they don't deserve what they got, even if they do. So envy is rooted in, it's a kind of sorrow, Aquinas says. And undealt with, it leads to the kind of anger that leads to backbiting, destruction of reputation, and even physical harm. Mercy, misericordia in Latin. First thing you need to know about mercy when Aquinas talks about it is, is it's not just forgiveness. It involves forgiveness. But mercy involves a kind of a heartfelt sorrow at the misfortune or affliction of another. The more undeserved, the more appropriate is the sorrow. So in each case, I'm looking at other people and comparing myself, thinking about them in relation to myself, or being moved by them in relation to myself. In the first case, I'm moved to sorrow because other people are doing well, and I think I'm not. Or at least the way in which they're doing well makes me look bad. In mercy, I look at the affliction of another and I am moved to sorrow for it. For Aquinas, mercy actually involves sort of three stages, which we go through very quickly. It's not like we work this out consciously. Sometimes we might. There's an initial feeling of sorrow. What This is what some other philosophers like Rousseau want to call this instinct of pity. right? So you can hear, and we feel this for animals, not just for humans, Right? If we were to hear a dog squealing in the hallway right now in pain, we would all be moved in our gut by that. Right? 
So there's the initial being moved by, which is just instinctive in a way, right? Pain, affliction. Conversely, if I were to hear a child screaming out there, I might be moved to pity initially. But if I were to walk out there and see that there's some 10-year-old kid throwing rocks at cars and the mother is or father is trying to keep the child from doing this and the kid is screaming in pain because he's not being allowed to throw rocks at cars or maybe the parent's doing it and the child's trying to keep the parent from doing it, whichever way it goes, my judgment changes as to whether I feel mercy or sympathy. So for Aquinas, it's the initially being moved instinctively in a way to sympathize and then a judgment. And if it's actually the exercise of the virtue of mercy, the judgment is this is undeserved suffering. Right? We don't work that out. If we see something horrible happening to someone, we instinctively. The last thing for Aquinas is you have to be willing to try to assist the person if you can. You don't have an obligation to try, and it would be an impossible, there, and therefore not an obligation, uh, to assist everyone who's afflicted at this moment. But if there's someone in your presence who's afflicted in a serious way, and you say, yeah, I've made the judgment and I feel the pity and walk away, you don't have the virtue, right? So it involves all of that for Aquinas. It involves the initial, the initial being affected by the trauma or the affliction or the suffering, the judgment. This is unjust or unfair or unwarranted, which increases for Aquinas the passion to feel sorrow even more, and then a willingness to act. Aquinas says that, talks about vices that render us, cause insensibility to mercy. I think what he means there is that can get as bad as not even really being moved in that initial way by the affliction of others. Those who are proud and think themselves self-sufficient because they think that they never have need of mercy and those who do deserve their punishments or their afflictions. Covetousness. Aquinas is a really weird thing with covetousness, greed, which is he treats it as a spiritual sin, like pride, envy, and wrath. Because he says the vice of covetousness is not primarily about the having of a bunch of stuff. It's not even primarily about wanting to have a bunch of stuff. The avaricious take pleasure in themselves as owners of massive amounts of property or wealth. So for Aquinas, avarice in that sense is a kind of pride. I'm thinking of my, and, and Aquinas says, with respect to riches, these are things over which we have absolute control. So we have complete sufficiency. And the more we have of them, the more we're subject to the illusion that we are self-sufficient. So actually, avarice is one of the chief vices that undermines mercy. we do about these vices? Right? Well, clearly with envy, one of the things to do 
is to have an honest talk with yourself about how you're deceiving yourself, thinking that this person doesn't deserve what they actually deserve. But also the practice of gratitude is a, is a virtue connected to justice for Aquinas that helps to curb instincts to envy. Mercy is also, the practice of mercy is also something that curbs envy. Instead of focusing on what other people have that I don't have, I focus on what other people are afflicted by and how I might help them. I'll come back to that uh, in just a few moments, these correctives to the vices. But I want to shift over to the one other article in Aquinas I want to talk about, which is the things that assuage sorrow. Aquinas lists five. None of them, interestingly, are explicitly theological. There are certainly theological responses to sorrow. The first thing Aquinas says, and it's interesting the way he puts it, any pleasure, any pleasure counters sorrow. I think he's speaking generically there of passions, and he's not judging or discriminating between good and bad pleasures. Any pleasure assuages sorrow. We all know this, right? And we all know that when we're really down about something, that's when certain kinds of temptations of pleasure arise for us much more intensely than they do at other times. That can go from simply, you know, wanting to eat more cartons of Ben and Jerry's to lots worse things that we could indulge in to experience pleasure, to assuage the sorrow. But it is, I was really struck by Aquinas' language that any pleasure assuages sorrow. So one of the things, and, and of course, one of the problems with sorrow and depression is that one of its symptoms is that we no longer take pleasure in the things that we formerly took pleasure in. We can't find delight in the things that gave us delight. We need to get ourselves, I mean, for Aquinas, it's, it's, it's quite true that we need to get ourselves back to experiencing pleasure if we're overwhelmed by sorrow of an unhealthy sort, especially. But because any pleasure will assuage any sorrow, this can deepen if we're tempted by certain addictions, right? physiologically, genetically, right? certain settings will trigger those. And often it's depression and sorrow that will make us want to have the pleasure. And the more intense the pleasure, the better. Because that zaps the sorrow. Right? It's really brilliant there that he says any pleasure. Just love that. Here's a real simple one, baths and sleep. Aquinas actually says this, baths and sleep. As opposed to the really serious kinds of sorrows that I was just talking about, many of our ordinary sorrows can be taken care of to some degree by just a good night's sleep. Because what does sorrow do? Sorrow weighs down the soul, the emotions, and the body and takes away its natural vitality. So for Aquinas, anything that restores the natural vitality of our body, our emotions, and our minds is a counter to sorrow. Sleep, baths, exercise. 
breaks from things that are causing us excessive sorrow, just taking breaks, right? And having silence. Baths and sleep, tears, tears. This is the one way in which I think Aquinas is saying sorrow can be transitive, that we can get rid of it. We can dispel it to some extent through tears. The really, the thing that shocked me in what Aquinas says here is tears actually do dispel the sorrow in some sense, right? The other thing Aquinas says about why tears help with sorrow is that we judge ourselves as rational animals that in certain circumstances, tears are the virtuous and good response. So instead of feeling like I should never express emotion in this way or never weep, Aquinas actually thinks that when we're doing this over, over a sorrow in an appropriate way, one of the things that eases the sorrow is not just the tears themselves, but our self-knowledge that it's appropriate that we should weep for this loss or this evil or this suffering. He's not a stoic. Aquinas is not a stoic when it comes to the passions. Friendship. Two ways in which friendship eases. One is because, as he said, metaphorically at least, and it feels this way physically, sorrow is a weighting down of the soul. When friends are with us, it seems that that burden is eased because they share it. That's metaphorical in a sense, although it feels real, right? The more important thing for Aquinas about friendship in times of sorrow is that friends remind us that we're loved. And that's one of the things we're apt to forget in sorrow. The last thing, he's a Dominican, he's Thomas Aquinas, contemplation of truth assuages sorrow. So, you know, just do a bunch of really tough math problems when you're sad. Um, I think this is a really, it's, this is really interesting. And I think there's actually, I think we, we need to add things that he doesn't say here and think about this a little bit in our experience, but Aquinas thinks that our souls are naturally drawn to what's true, what's good, and what's beautiful. We might start with, in this case, what's beautiful. One of the bad effects of sorrow that can make it worse, and Aquinas actually talks about this at one point, one of the dangers is, he doesn't quite use this language, this would be a bad English translation, but I can't remember the Latin. We get, in a sense, locked in ourselves with sorrow, right? And that, that can intensify the sorrow because we can't pull out, and we're just going over and over again in our minds and in our hearts, the things that are making us sorrow, or the mystery of why we're sad. What contemplation does for Aquinas is it pulls us out of ourselves. If we're actually in a contemplative moment with the true, the good, or the beautiful, we are caught up in 
the object of truth, goodness, or beauty. I mean, th think about that when you see something, and it can range from very mundane things like cars that you might think are beautiful, all the way up to great art or the cosmos, or listening to Christ's passion and death. Right? And you can suddenly be caught up in the beauty. You lose yourself in that. One of the things about great conversation that's about important matters, one of the things about the experience of beauty is that we lose track of two things. We lose track of ourselves and we lose track of time. Right? When we're sad, we can't stop thinking about our affliction. When we're sad, we can't stop thinking about how darn long this is going on and will it ever end. In contemplation, we're pulled out of ourselves. We're engaging in what, um, uh, um, what Iris Murdoch calls unselfing right, in one of her essays. Or uh, this contemporary Christian Japanese-American painter Mako Fujimura is influenced by Aquinas and he does abstract art. It's quite beautiful, actually. It's not, uh, I think, uh, I think it's, it's quite moving. And people say, well, how do I understand your art? And he says, well, look, if you're, he says, let's not talk about my art. If you're in front of great art, don't think about understanding it. Think about standing under the art. Think about emptying yourself in the presence of beauty so that you let the object of beauty fill your soul. And through that experience, you will come to understand art. We have to stand under what's true, stand under what's good, and stand under what's beautiful. But we lose track of ourselves, right? This is also the difference between training and excellent performance, whether it's in sports or music or theater. When you're training, you have to think about yourself, get it right, do those exercises again. Move your fingers in a certain way. When you become adept, you can't think about those things. Or you're a note behind or a play behind on the court. This experience in contemplation, which we have analogs of all over our day-to-day -day human lives, for Aquinas is a way of transcending ourselves and transcending time. That doesn't take away necessarily the cause or the root of the sorrow, but it assuages it. And sometimes, as I've already mentioned, one of the things that intensifies the sorrow is that we're too focused on being sad for too long. And so I think Aquinas is actually absolutely right to put contemplation as one of the things that assuages or counters sorrow. I want to end. I want to end with another uh, basketball story. Um, it's been 40 years since this famous contest where NC State beat Houston in one of the biggest upsets. Final Four. Jim Valvano, the great coach, who you see speech every year at the ESPYS, right? Because he was 37 when they won the NCAA title. It, it is probably maybe Villanova Georgetown is the other great upset from that period. 
in the history of the NCAA tournament. Bavano, this Italian guy who came down to uh, came down to North Carolina, and he said the the first meeting he had, somebody introduced himself as Billy Bob Joe, and he said, "Where are the other two guys?" Uh, Valvano had a great great sense of humor, but ten years later, at forty seven, Valvano was dying from cancer, and he gave this great speech where they started the Jimmy V Foundation for Cancer. I just wrote a piece about this actually because I think there's uh, he was a uh, Valvano was an uh, raised in a Catholic uh, Italian family with all of the cultural aspects that go into that. He was also an English major at Rutgers uh, when he was an undergrad. And Valvano said, I want to give you, everybody here, some advice. If you do three things every day, you'll lead a full life. You should laugh. You should have time where you laugh with friends. You should be moved to tears. Could be by sorrow, but it could be by happiness and joy. You should have your emotions deeply moved. The other thing he said is you should think. It's a basketball coach, right? You should think. You should think about important things. If you do those three things every day, he said that's a day, that's a full life. That overlaps a good bit with what Aquinas is saying about flourishing in relation to sorrow. Friends not only console us, they also help us to laugh and ease the burden of our thinking this is something we will never escape from. And laughter gives us that perspective so that we're not under the burden as much. And Valvano was laughing on stage three weeks before he died of cancer. His sense of humor helped him in the midst of the greatest trial that he faced, in the midst of facing what he knew to be soon to be death and thinking. The way in which our minds move, as there's a, uh, in one of the lines from T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets, distracted from distraction by distraction. This is us, right? Distracted from distraction by distraction. We get on here for some alleged reason 45 minutes later, we can't even remember why we got on, right? And not to say that everything that goes on here is unhealthy or not can't be good things, but we lead lives filled with distractions. Thinking is about attending. Right? Thinking is about attending to others, to the subject matter in front of you, to the film you're watching, to the game that's on. It's about attending. And we sometimes have to multitask, but if every hour of every day is full of multitasking, we will not be attending, we will not be thinking, and we will likely be sad because of this. So thank you for listening, and let's have some happy questions. No more sorrow. Thanks. And I'm supposed to repeat the question so we get it recorded. Unless I don't like it, in which case I'll change it. I'll do my best to make this a good question. Pressure's on. Well, let's just say there's a situation in which a 
man and a woman meet for the first time, and at some point, the man or the Are you asking for a friend here? <laughs> um, I'm just going to ask for your opinion okay, on okay. teaching on it. That was what I was, that's the response I'm looking for, but... Uh, the situation continues. To That's the unfinished part of the summa, the, the, the great first date lines. That's the unfinished part of the summa. Go ahead. Sorry. I'm... You're good. So uh, the, the woman or the man uh, may end up becoming a little too emotional and may say some things a little out of pocket and may continue to say some things. As, as rare as this is. Yeah. Okay. And it goes above beyond the boundaries and kind of crosses a line that, that shouldn't be crossed, at least emotionally, a line that shouldn't be crossed. And there's definitely a chance they're going to be seeing each other again at some point if they live in the same area. Okay. So how would you deal with that so that it makes, that, that you can make the good of it out of the sorrow that you experience out of the conversation that did definitely not go well? I think we could hear that up here. Think we could hear that. The question, the question about. So, uh, is this a dating situation or just people? But it's but it's a it's a guy and a girl. You said okay, and one gets one gets allegedly excessively emotional, and then um, I take it that was basically the end of that interaction when that happened. After, at that moment. At, at, at that moment. That was what was going through, and that was the feeling that was bestowed upon either the man or the woman at the end of the conversation. And they continue to carry that affliction with them. So I'm asking you, how can you make So which person is afflicted here? <laughs> the one who was excessively emotional or let's, the one, the one who suffered the outburst? Let's say uh, the one who was afflicted emotionally. Who? So the one who got over... over Overly emotional? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I think it's actually, in some ways, it's easier if that, if that person actually thinks that, right? That if that person, if, that, if, if he or she thinks they got overly emotional, um, and it's not a weird, there's no kind of weird romantic awkwardness there, um, it seems to me that, that that person should find a way to... Take the other person aside and say, sorry. Like, That's the extent of my counseling ability. <laughs> if my kids were here listening to this question, they would say, don't ask him that. And, that's, and that should be coming from the person that is overly emotional saying sorry to the other Well, if I, I, what I said was if, if, that, if that person thinks that he or she was overly emotional, and that's the awkwardness going forward. It seems to me it's actually easier for that person to say, I'm sorry, I just got, I got too worked up and, and I'm sorry about that. It's a little harder if the, I thought you were proposing the scenario where it's the person who got the emotion dumped on them and they wanna, and, but then they've gotta say, you know, you were really too worked up and that's much more awkward, I think, than being able to say, hey, I'm sorry, should be. That's anybody else got yes. What do you think is causing the the amount of loneliness in our society? Because we're supposed to be the most connected we've ever been. Yeah. Allegedly. Yeah. Um, 
so there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of breakdowns of um, uh, you know we were when I was a kid we were just completely neglected we, you know we were allowed to go run in streets and just show up for dinner maybe and if you're not here by Tuesday we might call a neighbor and see if they know where you are um, but but part of that was a sense that that and there were better and worse communities. I mean, there's certain parts of America that you would never have wanted to do that with your kids, right? Uh, but there was a, a sense of a kind of social fabric where you basically trusted anybody. We don't, we don't have a lot of trust of people now. There's not, there's a very low quotient of trust, I think, of, of uh, people who are neighbors but strangers, right? That is people with whom we live in proximity and interact in various ways. Um, it's not a lot of, not an enormous amount of trust there, right? So even the sense of belonging in a neighborhood or uh, in, a, uh, in a development, that's, and, and then you have, I mean, you have family breakdown, you have, we don't have multi-generation families living together. Right? I think the political situation makes this a lot harder. And I think it makes it harder no matter which side you're on. Right, Just the sense of, I don't know who these evil people on the other side are, but I don't like them and I don't recognize them and I don't want to be friends with them. So uh, a, a, a significant decline, and this is, this is worse after COVID in church participation, it doesn't just have to be church, but local churches have been a great source of social capital and people sensing that they belong, right? And that they know people. Also, we increase, we we're talking a little bit about this at dinner. There, there's there's an, a decline in actual funerals for people who die. And, um, and in surveys and interviews, people express a certain kind of awkwardness with not knowing what to say or do in the face of death. Right. We're increasingly mute as Americans in, in the face of life's most important events. Events of great joy and events of great sorrow. We don't know how to articulate these passions that Aquinas is talking about. Fear, hope, sorrow, joy. We have to some extent a contraction in the experience of them. I think that's that's connected to the contraction in friendship. I mean, because friendships in particular, families, but friendships are places where you experience in a natural way. I, mean, I, was, I was talking to this, I wrote a piece for St. Patrick's Day about, I'm not Irish, but grew up around lots of Irish, uh, sort of one generation removed from being in Ireland in the Washington DC area. And I was never so happy to have all those guys that I went, I went to an all-male Catholic high school, uh, all those Irish guys that I hung out with as when my dad and my mom died, because they all showed up. And the Irish, as do many other immigrant groups, have a great way of knowing how to sing, how to give toasts, how to move from weeping to laughing, to celebrating, to memorializing. That range of emotions 
to be human, we really need to experience that range of emotions in a healthy way. And we need to experience the way in which they go in and out of one another, right? Like Valvano saying, you should laugh and you should weep every day, right? And you should think. The, the conversations that go on there, the storytelling, there's a decline in those things. I mean, it's not, it's not irretrievable, but uh, we're probably gonna learn more from immigrant communities as Americans about that than we are from generic American communities now. So I think there, I mean, there, there's lots of studies of this. I was working with someone who's working on, and Baylor's doing lots of research on institutions. And he was saying he thinks the crisis of our time is the crisis of belonging or the lack of belonging. Uh, that that's, that's what we're experiencing. And that, that creates sorrow that you don't know what to do with. It's one thing to have sorrow and to have lots of friends around. That's a much better way to experience sorrow. Yeah. Yeah. As connected as we've ever been. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. What's the what is to be said about the ineffectiveness of substituting a friend on a screen for a friend in your presence? Sometimes friends can't be present. I mean, I have a couple friends whom I know are going through a really rough time right now for various things, and I text them a couple times a day. I also try to, if they're one's nearby and one's not. And so I try to get together with that person, but I check in and I'm actually glad I have that, right? I'm glad I have the capacity to text. Uh, and he knows that I'm thinking about it, right? Um, so it's not, it, it's not as if it using social media or using technology necessarily makes it worse. It's just that we don't have a sufficiently rich in-person experience to complement that. Or the other way is that that technology should be complementing a sufficiently rich in-person experience. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, you know, and not everybody is, is awful on social media. Professor Frey right here is exemplary on social media. She's one of my heroes on social media. But there aren't many people who, I don't, and some days I don't know how she does what she does, given the conversation she's in. But I, uh, some people are really good at it. I, I'm not on, because I don't think I would be good at it if I were on it. Yeah. A sorrowful longing yeah. for nothing in particular or for... Yeah. 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 So a longing for what seems unlikely to be realized. Um, yeah, and I mean, you know, I'm reminded of the first page of Augustine's Confessions, right? For you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until we rest in you. Um, that longing, I mean, one of the worst things that can happen is that the longing goes away, right? That we no longer have a longing. But we can, um, 
we can certainly long for things that are um, not plausible, right? And we can create fantasies with our longings that will hinder, if not make it impossible for us to actually have deeper longing satisfied by what's right in front of us. I mean, we can constantly deflect to an imaginary world where everything's better, where the person I'm dating is like this, or the person I'm married to is like this, or my friends are like this, or my job is like this. I mean, sometimes if you're doing that, you realize you got to get, you got to get some new friends or you got to get a new job. But, but to develop a habit of treating every experience that you have in that way is really unhealthy. And it's, it's a pretty good guarantee that you're never going to have any longing satisfied. Yeah, so, um, I mean, uh, imagination, um, you know, Wendell Berry has this line about fantasy, and he's not talking about fantasy the way Tolkien and Lewis are talking about fantasy. He's talking about fantasy as a kind of self-indulgence, right? And he says that fantasy keeps us trapped in ourselves. Imagination is what allows us to reach out and touch another person and inhabit their world, in a sense. And and so our, our longing is a longing to, to be connected to something that's not me, right? Something that's other than me, someone who's other than me. Um, and the problem with fantasy, as, um, as Barry's talking about it there, is that fantasy's always, always twisting things back. I, I mentioned Iris Murdoch earlier in that same essay. This became a kind of rallying cry in this moral philosophy class I had last semester where she talks about what we have to watch out for are the anxious, avaricious tentacles of the self. That's a mouthful. The anxious, avaricious tentacles of the self. But that's our habit to twist everything according to the image we have of ourselves and the image we would like others to have of ourselves and to fill our own fantasies. Yeah, that, that, that came up like three classes in a row and then every class the rest of the semester at some point someone would say, Professor Hibbs, we haven't mentioned the avaricious tentacles. Like, okay, now we have, so we're good. But it, it, there, is, there is something about that, about longing connected to fantasy in the bad sense that's just a pulling everything back into me and longing that actually takes me, like classical eros is understood, to take me out toward the beautiful and the good. Yes? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. It's not anger. The initial yeah. Is yeah. That's really good. So it was about the decline in life expectancy yeah. and something having to do with not, as Aquinas puts it, uh, fear, sorrow, anger, but fear, sorrow, resignation. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of despair, right? And I think the, the fentanyl crisis uh, is connected to that, right? The, and the, uh, uh, and that's, that's where any pleasure can counter any sorrow really self-destructive but powerful pleasures can do that really well for a short period of time. Yeah, I think resignation, you know, um, when Aquinas talks about actadia, that's that extreme form of sorrow that paralyzes even our limbs, right, so that we don't want to move. I mentioned that he also talks about it as a vice, 
It's sorrow over the divine good. It's a despair. It arises out of the monastic tradition, which is called the noonday devil, where monks lose their appetite for God in their prayers. They become distracted by anything and everything. Then it's broadened over time. In fact, R.J. Snell, whom some of us were talking about earlier, has a book on Akshadi as a kind of way of analyzing the afflictions of our current culture. But yeah, a kind of a kind of resignation that can lead to despair, but that can also be masked by, we think of sloth as laziness, right? Typically, that's one way it's manifest. But the other way in which sloth is manifest is by a kind of hyper-disordered activity, just a constant series of distractions, where you're kind of masking what? The deep despair and resignation beneath the surface. Yeah, so that's, um, I, I think if you, if you don't have, anger is, is in a way weirdly connected to hope. Right, because um, the healthy operation of anger in the face of fear and sorrow is to say, "How do I get out of this? How do I fight it? Right? How do I fight this evil?" The the unhealthy kind of anger is, "How do I project it out toward you?" But I'm I've got a kind of delusive hope there, right? Because I'm thinking I'm going to feel better by targeting the anger at you, right? So anger, if you really give up hope, there's no point in being angry. Yes, that's right. Yep, very good point. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, anger comes from agency. Yes, yes, very good. Yep, right here. Now you got me thinking about that movie. Um, so the question about toxic ma masculinity and uh, kind of fight club on the one hand and resignation and despair and suicide on the other. Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, we, I think we don't know what to do with that part of the soul that Plato calls thumos, right? And this is also what's connected with anger, right? It's, the, it's what Aquinas calls the irascible passions. The passions that get worked up when we're facing something that's difficult or dangerous. I don't think we want to know what to do. We know, we know how to debase eros and satisfy it. We know how to turn reason into a kind of calculating machine. I don't think we know what to do with thumos. Um, uh, and there, there are lots of reasons for that. I, I also think, though, that, I mean, I, I think what... Um, what one of the things that young men need, all human beings, but maybe in this respect, particularly young men, is um, very sort of focused experiences of um, of achievement. I don't think it's always about the big thumos moment. In fact, I've got a I've got a um, a, a good friend who was a police commissioner in Baltimore right after Freddie Gray, and he's now police commissioner in Fairfax County. And he comes from multiple, as many police do, he comes from multiple generations of police. And so one of the things he said to me, and I use this whenever I teach uh, Aristotle on courage versus boldness, right, which is the vice that looks like courage. Cowardice doesn't look anything like courage. And 
Kevin Davis's name, what he, what he said was, you know, one of the problems with, was with the recruitment of police and using the videos of the big Thumos moment where you're breaking down a door or you're arresting people or you're in the middle of a riot. Right? When he said, you know, actually what police do, 95% of it is community relations. Now you have to be able to have the courage and the sensibility to react in those moments. But what are you going to attract if those are your videos, right? You're going to attract people who are itching to bust down doors. The kind of people who every, every time they go out on a Saturday night by 2 a.m., they're looking for a fight, right? These are the people who understand courage as boldness. Um, I, think, I think that what most, certainly we all need things to defend, perhaps men more than women, but I think women need things to defend too. But I think what men need uh, in some ways, because it comes less naturally to us as a species, is a focused experience of achievement. I think it's generally agreed upon now that in high schools and in colleges and in law schools, the female students are outperforming the male students. And we know that everybody's got a kind of affirmative action in their admissions program for male students, because if we didn't, it would be 80% female. And nobody wants to have 80% female because then they think it'll be zero male after a certain period of time in admissions. But I think men need more than anything concrete experiences of achievement, often with their hands. Something I never had growing up. Matt Crawford is, is a guy who's really good on this, wrote this famous essay, Shop Class as Soulcraft. But he's really good on the, and this is important for all of us to get out of the virtual what Crawford says is that we're tempted by, I think this is really brilliant insight, what we're tempted by in the virtual world is the, the illusion of a frictionless universe where nothing pushes back against me, right? And actually uses Freud in this context where Freud says, infants are dominated by the pleasure principle. Adults are, have learned to navigate the reality principle. The fact that things are going to push back against your will. We all need experiences early on of things pushing back against our will, not in unhealthy and abusive ways, right? But knowing how to navigate that and actually learning how to enjoy that, right, is really a key to leading a, a flourishing life, one of the keys. But I, I think it's right to say that the that there may be, a, a there is something of a crisis on this through most part, but I think it's actually concrete experiences of achievement. Right here, I've, I've gone past you two or three times already. So you said earlier that the source of this generation of sorrow is the economy. And that's been an interesting question I've had is, have you seen a generational shift in like the ingredients that we need to experience belonging that there's a change in our generation's desire for belonging versus like the older generation? So is there a change in the desire for belonging? The what definition of belonging. belonging yeah, I, actually what I was quoting, there was somebody who works full time on this stuff that I know at Baylor who says that his view of where we are in the church and outside is, is a crisis of belonging. And there may be deeper things there too than just that, right? But um, I don't know if there's a generational, again, I go, I go back to the the way that we were just neglected in good ways. Um, 
what there was this um, uh, Brookings Institution did a, a study of young people in the workforce and the decline over the last 30 years of teenagers in the workforce. It's just enormous. Um, and there are lots of causes for that. It doesn't mean to me at all that young people are lazier. In fact, they're playing year-round sports, travel stuff. They're taking six AP courses. They're taking summer stuff. It's, it's just that those activities are monitored by the same group of people, parents, teachers, coaches, all the way through. Whereas if you get a job, the best thing you can do, also the most painful thing, is to work retail for a couple of years. Because if you work retail, you will learn how to deal with coworkers, bosses, and the general public. And I didn't know when I was doing those jobs in high school uh, and early college, just so I could have gas money and then beer money, uh, that I was actually learning things that would be really important. But it, it's, it's, it's something that's fallen out, right? So where do you, and, and that was, you know, was, I got jobs with friends of mine who had jobs, right? And then that, in a way, deepens the friendship because you reflect upon how awful that boss is or how awful those people were as customers today. So I think there are just lots of ways in which certain rituals and practices have been weakened. Because belonging is just a matter of, I mean, in one sense, it's just a matter of hanging out, right, with the people you find yourself with. And, and out of that comes friendship. And then you belong. Right? That's really simple, but for m most people, that's how that happens. One more question. Okay. Way in the back. Yes. So, friendship. You talked about friendship in a personal sense towards me reaching out to other people, and also the societal sense of the reason why society is such a. And it's a collective incorrect attitude towards personal outsets. Okay. Do you think that's accurate? Yeah, so, really good question. So, is it with, with the absence of friendship or the absence of close friends, is it more external factors or is it just not taking the opportunity personally to be focused on having friends? Is that how you would put it? So one of the things I was, I was thinking about saying in response to the toxic masculinity thing is, you know, I, I see a, a good bit of this online with men complaining about how they're, everyone's accusing them of things and there are no women they can date. And I'm like, well, get off this damn thing, right? And quit, quit posting about it on Twitter and just get out there and meet people. You'll have a much better chance than complaining about it on here, right? And so that's, that's to your point in a way on this, right? That, um, I, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a mix of both. I, I do think that there aren't, um, that there can be external factors which make it more difficult, but there's always, not always, but there's often also just a personal failure to exercise agency, right? To exercise agency and just say, I'm just going to go start, I'm going to join this or I'm going to join that. I'm going to get involved in some way, and I'm not just going to be passive. Right? The, 
the thing about friendship, and this runs from Aristotle to C.S. Lewis, right? Lovers are face to face. Friends are side by side. You might occasionally talk about your friendship, but all these guys I went to high school with, if I sat down with them over a beer and started talking about our friendship, they aren't buying the next round with me, right? <laughs> I mean, maybe a little bit. We, we talk a little bit. It's not, that's not the primary focus, right? And Lewis says, many friendships begin with someone turning to another person and saying, what, you too? You like this? Or you think those people are weird and funny in the way I think they're weird and funny? Right? It's that, it's that quirky, sometimes quirky, sometimes more significant identification of sharing what? An angle on the world. You got to get out and be with people to have that. And then it just happens. But you're right. If you, if you just sit around wishing that you had friends, you don't want to go out and say, you know, everybody you meet, hi, I'm John, I'm looking for a friend. That's also not a good, not a good strategy. But, but to find things that you love to do and then have other people find those things along with you. Not everybody, it, just because you love the same thing won't make you a friend, but chances are among those people who love those things, you're going to discover a friend or two. So agency is, is, I'm glad you made that point. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.